Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you. Um, I'm back for the foreseeable future. And, uh, and <laughs> thank you. It's good to be back. I missed you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll spend the next two weeks in the book of 1 Peter. And then on August 15th, we're going to start a series that I'm calling Heaven and Hell a study of our eternal destination. And um, it's a series I did about 12 years ago, my previous church. It was the number one listened to on podcast sermon series I ever did, history of my church. And so I want to do it here. Um, we're going to look at what hell is like and the biblical foundations for hell. Then we're going to look at heaven for a couple weeks. I'm really excited about it. Um, and so that's going to be coming up on the 15th. But today, we're looking at First Peter 3, 18 and 19, excuse me, in 1 Peter 3, 19, it might be the most debated verse in the whole Bible. When I say debated, I mean it's, it's a complicated verse. Different theologians come down on different ways that this, thing's, uh, this thing means. And so I'm going to do my best to explain it to you today. Normally, uh, pastors don't preach verse by verse because of verses just like this. Because you get to them and you're like, I have no idea what that means. We're moving on. Let's talk about, you know, something else. But I'm, I'm not going to do that. So we're going to jump in here. Everybody check this out. Peter makes the statement that immediately following Jesus' death on the cross, he was alive in the Spirit, and he went and made proclamation to the spirits that are now in prison because they formerly did not obey. And you read that, and you think, well, what in the world is he talking about? Where, where did Jesus go after he died? And who are these spirits that are now in prison? And, and why is he preaching to them or making proclamation to them? Well, there's three different theories that scholars typically fall into one of three categories of what this verse means and how they interpret it. But I don't want my sermon this morning to be an hour and a half long. And so I'm not going to go into depth on all of the way, all the things this thing could mean. I'm just going to focus on the one that I believe to be correct, okay? Let me say two quick things here. It's a fascinating verse, and so if you go home and you study this on your own and look at commentaries and stuff like, like that, which is great, I hope you do that, and you disagree with my conclusions, that's totally okay. There are smarter theologians than you and me that disagree with what I'm about to say, okay? There are smarter theologians than me that agree. Keep that in mind. But if you disagree, that's okay. And second, normally when I preach a sermon, I go through a text, I talk about the text a little bit, explain it, tell a story, tell an illustration, try to get your mind around it. Today's going to be really different. We have a lot of theology. We've got a lot of explaining to do. We've got a lot of scripture that we've got to plow through to get our minds around what in the world this thing is saying before we can ever get to the point at the very end of the message. And so if you've got ADD, put your seatbelt on. And hang with me. A <clears throat> lot of scripture, a lot of explanation, and I have a point at the very end, okay? So hang with me. Let's jump in. First uh, Peter 3.18. Let's read this together. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison 
who were once disobedient. Now, before I explain what this means, it's important to remember the context of the Bible here. It's important to remember the context of what Peter's doing in this book. In 1 Peter, he's writing to a group of Christians that are experiencing unjust persecution for their faith. They're being persecuted and they're suffering for their faith. And you know, we're going through a difficult time in our country now. And a lot of us think, well, it's dark, it's ominous right now for Christians in our country. But it's important to remember what these people were going through. Some of these people that Peter is writing to literally will be impaled on a stake, covered in oil, and set on fire to light up the gardens of the emperor. And so that's dark and ominous. Amen? And so these people are suffering. And so it's important to remember and keep in mind what Peter's doing here. Is he's not, listen, he's not saying this verse, because it's a really cool verse when you understand what it's saying. He's not saying this verse just to convey some cool theological principle. But he's teaching us this verse to encourage us and to strengthen us to endure unjust suffering. That's critical to keep in mind. And he's, he's teaching us and reminding us that because, here it is, because of the triumph of Jesus Christ on the cross, that any unjust, unjust suffering that you and I experience in this life, no matter what, because of the cross, one day, you and I will be completely and totally vindicated because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, before I go any further, I want to explain what I mean by the word vindicated. Give you a quick definition of the word vindicated. Vindicated means to show or to prove to be right and justified. To show or to prove to be right and to be justified. And so this really, through this really crazy verse, Peter's reminding us that no matter how, listen, no matter how bad it gets here on earth, no matter what we go through, how much suffering we endure, you and I can take comfort in the fact and the reality that Jesus Christ has already won the battle. He's already won. And so in the end, our faith in him, one day because of the cross, will be completely and totally vindicated, be proven right and justified. All right? So let's jump in. Let's start unpacking this. Hang with me. Look at verse 18. Peter begins, and he says this. He says, for Christ also died for sins, once for all. So Christ also died for sins once and for all. And so Peter begins his argument before he gets into the difficult stuff, and he begins um, by reminding us that Jesus died a physical death in order to pay for our sins once and for all. Now, if you're new to church here today, some of you may be new to church or new um, to checking out this Christianity thing, I want to just explain what that means by that. I don't want to assume everybody understands that. Don't turn there, just listen. But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so every single human being that has ever lived and ever will live on multiple occasions throughout their life has sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Okay, now because of that, what does the scripture say is the result of the fact that you and I have sinned? Well, Romans 6.23 tells us. Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, the wages of sin is death because he's God 
And because he's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, when you and I sinned and rebelled against him, the wages or the payment that you and I earned for our sin is death. And so after we sinned and we earned the payment of death in the Old Testament, God set this thing up called the sacrificial system. And it was a sacrificial system where God allowed a sacrifice to be made and that sacrifice could die in our place. That it could pay the payment of death for us temporarily. And so once a year, during the Jewish Passover, you would take a spotless lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb. And you would shed its blood. That lamb would die. And then that lamb would serve as a, the death of that lamb, and the blood of that lamb would serve as a payment for your sin for that year. And your sin would be atoned for or forgiven for the year. But there was a problem. What was the problem? You'd sin again. You'd sin all year long. You'd make a sacrifice because the payment of sin is death. The, the lamb would die. But then the next morning, you'd get up and you'd kick your dog or something, right? And you'd sin again. Don't kick your dog. That was a joke. And then so the next year would come around, You'd have to make another sacrifice to pay for that year's sin. But then you'd get up, you'd sin again. And the next year, you'd have to pay another sacrifice. And this would go on and on and on. It was estimated that a quarter million sheep a year were killed offering sacrifice for our sin. And so over the centuries, literally millions of sheep were slaughtered and died to make the payment, the death payment, for our sin. But I want you to watch again what Peter says. 1 Peter 3.18. He says, for Christ also died for sins. But then watch what he says. He says, once for all. Once for all. So because of God's great love for you and because of his great love for me, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to go to the cross. And listen, Peter is reminding us that because of the cross, you and I don't need a million sheep anymore. Because of the cross, Jesus went and shed his blood and Jesus gave up his life. And when he did that, he became the ultimate, perfect, once and for all time sacrifice for our sin. And that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking up one day, John the Baptist started shouting out really loudly. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Peter begins this whole thing by reminding us in verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all time. Okay? Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus make a once and for all time payment for our sin? Well, I'm glad you asked because Peter tells us. Look at verse 18 again. He says, for Christ also died for sins once and for all. The just for the unjust. In other words, Jesus was perfect. You're not. He was just. You weren't. He died once for all time for you. And he tells us why he did it. In the next part there, he says, so that he might bring us to God. He died. So that he might bring us to God. Now, look at the phrase, he might bring there. So that he might bring. He died once in the flesh for all time so that he might bring you to God. That phrase, he might bring, was a phrase in classical Greek when someone was being introduced to or was, get, uh, was given access to somebody of importance. And so back in the day, a king would have a throne room. And the king would be sitting on a stone in the throne room, and there would be an official outside the throne room at the door. And if anybody wanted to have access to the king and enter into the throne room, 
that official would decide whether or not they were qualified. And if they were qualified, the official would bring them to the king. Okay, and so Peter uses that exact phrase intentionally to show us that that's exactly what Jesus has done for us through the cross. We know that our sin, which we've all sinned, separates us from God. But through Jesus, once and for all time, payment for our sin, our sin is forgiven so that now we just don't have access to a king, but we have access to the king of kings. And so Jesus died once and for all time so that we might be brought to God. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All right. How many of y'all are following with me so, so far? All right. Not that hard to understand. If you grew up in church, this makes total sense to you. Jesus died, made a once and for all payment for our sins so that we now have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Okay. But then Peter starts kind of getting crazy. All right. So let's watch what he says, because he's going to start talking about what happened Next, and what happened after Jesus' death. So look at verse 18 again. He says, For Christ also died for sins, once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Okay? So far, so good. Then he makes a statement. He says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, so Christ died. We might be brought to God. And then Peter makes a statement that Jesus was put to death. Look at it. He was put to death in the flesh. Now, that's actually a really critical statement for us to understand what's going on today and historically, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. Why is that important? Because it was a historical fact that Jesus was alive after the cross. He, he was witnessed. Him being alive after the cross was witnessed by hundreds of people. And so in order, and we know that because he was resurrected from the dead, but skeptics of Christianity tried to get the word out there that Jesus never actually died and was resurrected back to life because they want to deny the resurrection. So skeptics of Christianity, even other religions, have said through the years, look, Jesus never really died in the flesh. He was just in this semi-comatose state on the cross, and they wrapped him up, put him in the tomb, and then three days later, he woke up from a coma, but he never actually died died. Now, if that's true, if that's really what happened, that's a really big deal. Why is that a really big deal if Jesus never actually died? Because the wages of sin, the wages of your and our sin is what? Death. And so if Jesus never actually died on the cross, you and I are still in our sin. But you and I know better than that. It can't be true. Look at John 19, 32. John 19, 32. It says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. And so we know that Jesus was crucified and there was a, um, a thieves on his right and his left. And one thing we know about crucifixion is when they were wanting to hasten the death of somebody that was being crucified, they'd break their legs. The reason they did that was because if your legs were whole, you could lift yourself up and you could get a breath. 
and they'd come back down. But if they broke, broke their legs, they couldn't raise themselves up anymore, and so they would die of suffocation more quickly. And said, the soldiers broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of them. Look at verse 33. It says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. So that was actually a fulfillment of scripture, that no bones of his would be broken. But they, the Romans saw that he'd already died. That's one clue. And then verse 34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Okay, so the Roman soldiers had one job that day. They had one job, and that was to make sure that Jesus was dead. So they broke the legs of two guys. They looked at Jesus. They thought, this guy is already dead. We realized he died, but to make sure that he was dead so that they didn't get in trouble for not doing their job, they took a spear and pierced it through his side. Okay, so in verse 18, what Peter is doing is he's making, making it absolutely crystal clear that Jesus died, that he died in the flesh. He was dead, okay? Now, look at verse 18 again. Look what he says next. He says, for Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but then watch what he said. He says, but made alive in the spirit, okay? So Peter, Peter literally says here that Jesus was dead in the flesh. He is dead in the flesh, but he's alive in the spiritual realm. That's what he says, okay? Now I want you all to listen to me really carefully here because this is key to understanding what he's talking about and what's going on here. A lot of theologians think that this verse, he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, went and preached to the spirits now in prison, think that this is talking about the actual resurrection. But I'm convinced it's not talking about the actual resurrection because if Peter were talking about the actual resurrection, he would say um, that Jesus was resurrected in the flesh. He, 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 would, he would say something to the effect of he was dead in the flesh, but he was made alive in the flesh if he was talking about the resurrection, but he doesn't say that. He says he was dead in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so when was Jesus dead in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, but not yet alive in the flesh? I believe he's talking about the three days while Jesus was in the tomb. The only time when Jesus was dead in the flesh but alive in the spirit was in that three-day period before his physical fleshly resurrection. And so what Peter appears to be telling us is what Jesus did during those three days in the tomb before his physical resurrection, okay? Which is kind of cool because, I'm sorry, I'm getting hot here. My glasses are fogging up. Take them off for a second. It's kind of cool when you think about it. Like, have you ever thought about what was Jesus doing in that three-day period before he rose from the grave? When he died and his spirit was alive, did he go to heaven to be with the Father? Was he just in the tomb, hanging out? Was the spirit just hanging out, watching Netflix, you know, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the resurrection? Like what was Jesus' alive spirit doing when he was dead in the flesh? Well, Peter tells us what his alive spirit was doing. And the statement that he makes would become, again, one of the most debated 
um, scriptures and all of 2,000 years of church history. Okay, so let's read it. Again, he says in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look at the first part there. It says, in which also. And so what Peter's saying when he says, in which also, he's saying he's still dead in the flesh and he's still alive in the spirit. That's what that means. So he's saying, in which also, and here's what it says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, so he's dead in the flesh. He's alive in the spirit. What did he do? Look at verse 19. Peter says, in which also he went. He went. Look at the phrase there. He went. That is the Greek phrase poromia, which means to go from one place to another. So Peter's saying that Jesus is dead in the flesh, but he's alive in the spirit. He went somewhere. He went somewhere. Well, where did Jesus go? And what did he do when he got there? Look at verse 19 again. It says, in which also he went and made proclamation. Okay, so Jesus is dead in the flesh. He's alive in the spirit. He goes somewhere from one place to another. And here's what he does. He makes a proclamation. Now, the proclamation, it's a word, um, I think it's the Greek word caruso. It means to boldly claim something. It means to boldly herald something. So Jesus went somewhere when he's dead in the flesh, alive in the spirit, and he made this bold proclamation. He heralded something boldly. Well, what did he proclaim? We don't really know because Peter never comes out and says it. In other places in the scripture, it'll say made proclamation of something. Peter didn't say that. just said he boldly proclaimed something. <clears throat> most often, not, not most often, but oftentimes in ancient literature, you would see that phrase, made proclamation, um, used in a military term. Like a king would win a great battle, and so he would send a messenger to make a proclamation of the victory. And so again, Peter didn't make it explicitly clear what the proclamation was, but listen to this. In light of the fact that Peter just said that Jesus made this once and for all time payment for our sin so that you and I would be brought back to God, that's a pretty good victory, amen? And so Jesus immediately in the spirit goes somewhere and makes proclamation. I'm convinced that the proclamation that Jesus made is that he is going somewhere and he is making proclamation of his victory on the cross. He just went somewhere and died, paying the once and for all time payment for our sin. He goes somewhere and he starts heralding his victory on the cross. Now, who did Jesus go and make proclamation of the victory on the cross to? Look at verse 19. It says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, this is where the disagreement with all the scholars comes in. And so who are these spirits now in prison that Jesus is boldly proclaiming the victory of the cross to? All right. One of the theories is that Jesus, after he dies, he's alive in the spirit. One of the theories is that he goes to hell and he preaches the gospel to folks, human beings that have died in their sin but never trusted in the Lord, and he's given him a second chance. That's one of the primary theories. He goes to hell, preaches the gospel to these human beings that have died in their sin. Well, there's a couple reasons I don't think that's it, quickly. 
One is typically when you see proclamation of the gospel, it will say that. It will say proclamation of the gospel. He doesn't say that. Um, And two, notice that Peter says Jesus made proclamation to the spirits. I think that's key. If uh, if Jesus was making proclamation to human beings who had died and gone to hell, Peter would have most likely used the word souls. Later on, Peter does that. He's talking about people that have died and, um, and he talks about them as souls. He doesn't say that he goes and makes proclamation to the souls. He says he goes and makes proclamation to the spirit. And one more thing is nowhere in the scripture does it indicate that once you die, you get a second chance to repent of your sin. Nowhere does it say that. As a matter of fact, in multiple places, it says the exact opposite of that. So I am convinced that Peter is not saying that Jesus went to hell and made proclamation of the gospel so that human beings could have a second chance. And so let's look at then who are these spirits that Jesus is making a bold proclamation of his victory on the cross to. Look at verse 19 one last time. He says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So who are these spirits that are right now present tense in prison? Well, this took me a long time to figure out, but I think I found the answer. It's in 2 Peter 2.4. It's in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6. It's really interesting. Let me read 2 Peter 2.4 to you. Peter says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so Peter's talking about that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness and to be kept there until judgment day. Who are the angels that sinned? Satan and his demons, right? Y'all with me? They're the angels that sinned. And it says that they sinned, he put them in chains, and he's keeping them there in gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Now Jude 1.6, it says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, now guys, I learned something this week that I've never heard before in my life, I've never thought about, I've never studied in all my life, but here's what I learned. Um, And I don't have time to go into all the reasons why this happened, maybe one day we will, but after Satan and his angels, when they fell and God kicked them out of heaven, God allowed Satan and some demons to go free and do their thing, right? We don't know why he did that, but he let some of them go, let Satan go, let demons go do the thing. But some of the demons he placed in prison and he put them in chains and they're being held there until the day of judgment. It's crystal clear. It's right there in Second Peter and in Jude. So I'm convinced that these spirits now in prison are those demons, okay? Now, after all that, here's what this thing means, in my opinion. Listen carefully. When Jesus died on the cross, he made a once and for all time Payment for our sin. That after he died in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit, and then he went and boldly proclaimed his victory on the cross to those demons being held in prison until the judgment day. I think that's what that means. That he went 
I was dead in the flesh, alive in the spirit, went to wherever these demons are, being held captive until judgment day, and he boldly proclaimed his victory on the cross. All right, now, here's the question. How does that strengthen us and encourage us to endure unjust suffering? Peter is taking time in the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God to explain to us that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to these demons. How does that encourage us and strengthen us to endure unjust suffering? Well, I want you to consider this. It encourages us in this way. Satan and his demons have been trying to destroy Jesus and keep him from going to the cross since the beginning of time. They've been trying to take Jesus out from the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter three, God tells Satan that a baby's gonna be born of a virgin. That baby born of a virgin is gonna grow up and crush him. And so from that moment, Satan went to work trying to keep that from happening and to take out the coming Messiah. In the book of Esther, we see the work of Satan when Satan tries to destroy the messianic line through the genocide of the Jews, but it does not work. The messianic line continues. In 2 Chronicles, we see the work of Satan once again when this evil, powerful queen named Athaliah rose up and attempted to destroy the line, the messianic line of David, but it didn't work. God saved a remnant of the line of David and the messianic line continued. Satan didn't work. Matthew chapter two, Satan tried to kill Jesus himself by murdering all the infant boys born in Bethlehem. It didn't work. In Matthew chapter four, Satan himself meets Jesus in the desert and tries to get him to sin so that he will not be qualified to make a once and for all time payment for our sin. He comes to Jesus, puts him on this high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, Jesus, you don't have to die. I'll just give them to you. You don't have to die. You don't have to shed your blood. You came here for them anyway. I'll just give them to you. All you gotta do is bow down and worship me. Jesus bows down in that moment, it's over. Satan wins, but Jesus doesn't. He looks at Satan and says, the word of God says that I'm to worship the Lord our God and worship him only, and so Satan failed again. Then in one final moment of hope, in the garden of Gethsemane, Satan sees Jesus wavering. And Jesus is on his hands and his knees and he's struggling and he's sweating draughts of blood and he's asking God, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way to atone for the sin of the world? And God tells him there is no other way. And so Jesus prayed the prayer, Father, it is not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus stands up from the garden and he willingly walks to the cross and he shed his blood and he cried out, it is finished. And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom so that you and I might be brought back to God. He gave up his life. He died in the flesh. And when he shed his blood and cried out, it is finished, and gave up his life in that moment, Satan's fate was sealed, and Jesus won the greatest victory in the history of the universe. And so Jesus walks up after his death and victory on the cross of these demons, wherever they are, and he proclaims his triumph. He walks up to them, says, great try, boys, but it's over. The victory has been won. Y'all ever heard that phrase, drop the mic? 
That's what Jesus is doing. I'm convinced. He wins the victory on the cross. He goes to these demons, held in prison, and he just walks off. Now, again, how does that comfort us? How does that comfort us? How does that strengthen us? I think it's actually pretty simple. I think through this crazy verse, Peter's reminding us that no matter what we endure in this life, that no matter what we endure in this life, that no matter how often you and I are falsely accused, no matter how often you and I are maligned and lied about and mocked, no no matter how much we suffer for our beliefs, no matter what, I think this is showing us that we can take comfort in the fact that the battle, the war actually, has already been won. And that matters. That means something. Jesus goes to these demons, proclaims his ultimate victory on the cross because he was giving us a glimpse, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of a future reality that there's coming a day when all of our suffering will be vindicated. He's giving us a foreshadowing of the reality that there's coming a day that every single person that's ever mocked God or mocked his people will forever be silenced. He's giving a foreshadowing to us of the day that is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. And I've been thinking about this, guys. I've been thinking about this a lot. He gives us this foreshadowing of the fact that, look, we're, Jesus is one. We're gonna be vindicated no matter what. And I'm thinking about what does this mean for us? What do we take away from this? And here's what I've taken away from this. Thought about it a lot, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. That we need to stop thinking it's up to us to defend God. Some of y'all need to hear that. Scripture says be ready to make a defense for the hope that's within you. What's the hope? Hope's in God. We need to stop thinking that we need to defend God the almighty God of the universe. We need to get to the place where we remind ourselves that it's not up to us to vindicate the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is quite capable of doing that himself. If this thing teaches us anything. Is this country going to Sheol in a handbasket? Things looking dark? They are. Is evil growing? It is. But if this story reminds us of anything, it's this, that in every single moment in the history of the world, when things looked the darkness, when it looked like evil was winning, in every single moment throughout history, when it looked like evil was winning, God was at work. God was at work. And this moment in history is no different. remind yourself deeply in your heart of that today that this moment in history is no different. And so you and I can lay our heads on our pillows at night and we can sleep in peace because no matter what, no matter what happens, we can take comfort in the fact that God has won and there's coming a day where he's gonna make all of this right. He's gonna make all of it right. I'll end with this. I apologize, but I have another football illustration um, that I'm gonna end with today. But I thought about it and... It's a good story, and it makes a lot of sense. It kind of helped us get our mind around this. But when I coached football in Austin, it's my son's sophomore year. 
And we were going in the state semifinals. We had to win the game to get to state. And we were playing our arch rivals, Houston Emory Wiener. Have you all ever heard of them? It's a Jewish school here in, here in Houston. And um, they are some big corn-fed boys over there at Houston Emory Wiener. And we were favored to lose. We were a 13-point underdog. And the two teams, my team, Austin Veritas and Houston Emory Wiener, and we got, just by a stroke of fate, we got to the locker rooms at the same time. The locker rooms were side by side. We got to the locker rooms at the same time, and so we were kind of standing out there. The coaches were making sure the kids didn't get into it and all that stuff. And I was turning to walk into the locker room, and I saw their star player. He was their star running back. He was the one we were most concerned about. And as he walked past me, he looked me right in the eye in this really arrogant and condescending voice. He looked at me and said, it's going to be a tough night for you tonight. And, um, I, you know, he's an 18-year-old kid. I'm an adult. <laughs> but he's an adult, too, at 18. <clears throat> and it was, dis- it was so disrespectful. And it made me mad. It made me really mad. And it was, it was demeaning, it was disrespectful. And in my flesh, I wanted to go up on him. I wanted to say something. I wanted to defend my team. But I didn't say a word. He said that, I just looked at him. I just kept on walking. It was a tough game. We were down at halftime. Things weren't looking good. We were having trouble stopping that kid. Um, third quarter came and went. We were still down. Fourth quarter came And we started clawing back little by little, two minutes ahead, or two minutes from the end of the game, we pulled ahead and won the game. They lost, we're going to state championship. They were favored by 13, they knew it, they were devastated. Right after we won, the way things used to go before COVID is two teams would line up side by side and cross in the field and shake hands. And so I'm shaking the kids' hands, saying good game, and about three or four football players up, I see him. I handle this better than y'all thinking I'm going to. (laughs) And I'm shaking hands, and I get to him, and his head was down. He wasn't even looking at people. And I shook his hand and just kind of held it and kind of went down like this to look at him, and I looked him in the eye, and I smiled. (laughs) And I just winked at him. (laughs) And just kept on walking. It was the greatest moment of my life. here's my point at the beginning of the game I was so mad I was so frustrated because of what that guy did but I want you guys to think about this how much sweeter was that victory because of what I went through how much more satisfying was the victory at the end of the game because I was maligned at the beginning of the game. When you experience suffering, it stinks. It hurts. It's so frustrating. But how much sweeter is the day of ultimate victory gonna be when the trumpet sounds and Jesus Christ comes busting through the clouds to forever vindicate every injustice you and I ever suffered? It's going to be really sweet.
going to be amazing. And so Peter says, be encouraged, be comforted, endure. Battle's been won, and that day's coming.